Okay, welcome to the workshop service, everyone, a trusted servant. My name is Allison. I am a compulsive overeater and the moderator for this session. Hi, Allison. <laughs> Help us preserve the cherished tradition of anonymity by refraining from taking pictures in this or any other meeting room. The format for this session is a reading, two speakers, and ask it basket questions. A basket with paper and pencil will be circulated for you to write any questions you may have for the speakers. Please specify whom your question is for. The reading is from OA 12 and 12. Pages 123 to 124. All OA members share a responsibility for the operation of OA. Some member, sometimes members who don't yet understand how our fellowship works will be heard to say things like, why did they change my favorite pamphlet? Or why don't they have a meeting in my hometown? We soon learn that there is no they and them in OA, only we and us. Acting through literature committees made up of OA members from around the world, we decide what literature to publish, rewrite, or discontinue. If we want a meeting in town, it's up to those of us who want it there to start one. This kind of responsibility sometimes scares us until we remember the words of tradition too. All we have to do is the footwork, and we can trust that the outcome to our loving higher power who provides us with all the resources we need. Okay, our first speaker is Ruth, who will speak for 20 minutes. My name is Ruth, and I am a compulsive overeater, and I am insane, and what's really, really funny is my friends from Sacramento, who for the people listening to the tape are the only people in the room outside the moderator and the other speaker whose name is Carl, is that I have for years, I've been in this program a while, and I have for years refused to do any speaking that requires standing up. So most of the time I speak, I'll speak at meetings, but I always ask when someone calls me and asks if I can be a speaker for that meeting, what's the format? Oh, we sit around the table or we sit in a circle, fine. Um, oh, well, we, it's a podium meeting. I don't do that kind of service. I will do anything else. I will not do that. A couple of years ago I spoke at, a, at our fellowship. We have a local event and uh, it's a day-long thing. And, Actually, Carl's spoken at it, and um, I was asked to speak, and for the, I think it had to do with staying absent through the holidays or something um, to that effect. And um, I said, I'll do it, but I can't stand up. And so um, that everybody said, oh, that's okay. It's just we want you to do it. So it's like there's probably like nine speakers that day or something in different panels throughout the day. And when it gets to me, I announce, I don't stand up. I'm going to sit, sit down and speak. So we have to undo the microphone and, you know. And I thought it was perfectly fine. That's who Ruth is. Ruth does not get up to speak. Uh, Ruth can't get up to speak. At that point, I was not able to get up to speak. What I, what I have come to realize um, since then, and this is a really good, good 
good lesson for me is that it had nothing to do with being able. It had everything to do with being willing or not willing and not willing to see it as a willingness issue because I always think that willing means want to do it, love to do it, feel good at it, feel confident, rush in, yay, I'm going to do it. No, it's just suit up, show up, and do the thing, which I apply to everything except standing up and speaking. So when this opportunity came along, I thought, you know, you just have to do it. What better place to do it than in a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous where I'm going to have support if anybody's there? And, um, you know, so what's the worst thing that can happen? I'll, I'll faint, fine. I'll have a heart attack. There's usually some medical people or defibrillators around. You know, just do it. So uh, then I thought, well, I should prepare. And then I realized I can't prepare because it'll, I'll have panic attacks. And I was having panic attacks. So I didn't do anything until Thursday night. Thursday night, I decided I should put together pictures because I'm the I never put together pictures, whereas in our area, people put together pictures, and I did it, and these people have seen me a million years, but I'll pass them around anyway. And, and what I'm really realizing about all of this, it's just my way of being different, my way of being dramatic, my way of trying to protect myself from something that just was, you know, now that I'm standing up here, and I'm not sure it would have made a difference if the room was full. It wasn't, it isn't that bad, and, and I have been, I literally, I think my pulse was up around because I do aerobic activity sometimes, not in recent years, but sometimes, and enough to know when my pulse rate's really, really high. And I think it was up probably around 150, 180, which at my age is too high. But, you know, I'm fine now. And uh, this was the absolute gift from God to be asked to speak, to totally panic, to come to an empty room, and to have the people who love me uh, most in the world to be to be sitting here. So just to qualify quickly in terms of um, my history, I was a very, very happy little kid. I had a wonderful, wonderful childhood. It was a long time ago, as the sepia tone picture will point out. But when I was three years old, I was happy, joyous, and free, and that's, that's what the picture is. And I remember my childhood up until fifth grade as being idyllic. I loved life. I embraced life. I did everything. I lived in the city. I went on uh, buses by myself. I mean, I've never let a kid do that now. But, you know, I did things that I made friends with all the merchants in the neighborhood. I got picked up by the police at the age of four and a half for having a parade in the street because my parents had taken me, I don't know, to Macy's or Shriners or some kind of big parade. And so that was great. So I organized a parade because that's the kind of thing I did. And you weren't supposed to do that, so I got in trouble. But um, And it took me a long time to understand that what people were looking at was a four-and-a-half-year-old and not what a four-and-a-half-year-old was feeling like, which was that I was six feet tall and I, you know, how anybody would mistake what I was doing for anything other than a professional parade. I don't know. Anyway, um, a real turning point in my life was when I uh, moved. At the, when I was entering the summer between fourth grade and fifth grade, I moved from a urban area where, at least in my little area, um, I was kind of extremely comfortable and, um, you know, to the extent that any kid that age is successful at being a kid, to what was then um, the wealthiest suburb in the, per capita in the United States. And on the first day of school, 
the beginning of the awful part of my life began and I I got um, I got there and my mom had gotten me we'd gone to the store and got maybe some kind of little pinafore with matching purse maybe or and everybody in the class was dressed in like designer stuff this is fifth grade and I knew right then that I didn't belong that I was ugly horrible wouldn't make it you know all the kinds I was very very good in school but this was on the other measures the, the second picture on there is from junior high school and I look at it today and it's okay um, and the dress is certainly I remember the dress the dress was gorgeous but I felt like shit. I just I felt ugly don't belong what do you do and the picture below that's from um, when I was in high school and I was a lifeguard which allowed me to eat a lot because we had a mandatory mile to swim every day and some days we had a mandatory five miles so you know and then in between we'd be active too um, and I look at I looked at that picture Thursday night and I looked at it and I said you know I'm fat and then I looked at it and thought well maybe I'm not fat and what I know is I haven't a clue when I was really obese which came later on the second side of the thing um, I knew I was obese and the way I knew was and I just gained weight and gained weight and gained weight after I went to college and my sister when I was in my 20s my younger sister who at that point was in her teens uh, or yeah she was 19 I think anyway she um, was getting married to the ideal person you know, a surgeon and, and she was much younger than I am and or she is still much younger than I am and she's also six, six feet tall and probably at the time wore a size 8 dress maybe she now wears a size 4 dress most of the time I mean she is just when we were little my mother took us to the pediatrician and told the pediatrician I think something people are going to think I'm abusing her she just she I give her food and she doesn't get she's so skinny and the pediatrician told her oh she's an exomorph I think it was anyway you know she's just she was she's just always going to look like that and sure enough um, she does but there's some interesting things about the wedding that now you know at the time I just couldn't even afford to think about them one was there was no wedding party because I was too big and my sister I'm sure did not want me in her wedding party and my mother's position was you know either she's in it or you don't have a wedding party so it wasn't that kind of wedding it was a garden wedding and just the, the bride and the groom and um, the other thing about it was that uh, and I come from a family where people did dress well after we got over the how you're supposed to dress in the place we lived um, so my mother took me shopping for for wedding gowns, you know, something to wear is not wedding gowns, something to wear for, you know, nice for a spring wedding outside, and there was nothing. And this was before the pretty plump and perky stores. But Lane Bryant was there. But even Lane Bryant, and I don't know what size I was at that point, maybe a 24-ish or somewhere around there. And I mean, I was big, and I mean, there was just nothing. So. Uh, we had to have a dress made and that was not like a treat get to have a custom made dress that was like a disaster and a put down and there were there are no that's the only remaining wedding picture in fact that's the only remaining picture of any of my heavy days and but there were no pictures from that wedding of um, me below about this level and um, 
anyway, fast forward. The next six months after that, I ate nonstop. I hit my high weight. I have no idea what it really was. The last time I actually remember weighing, I was just under 200 pounds, but I know that I was way over that at some point, and I was profoundly depressed. And um, somehow I then started to uh, diet, I mean, very unsuccessfully sometimes, very successfully sometimes. But I got, by the time I came to California, when I had just turned 30, um, I had gotten down to a sufficient size that I was, nobody would say, oh, she's obese, uh, but I was heavy and probably um, 40, 50 pounds heavier than I am now, but certainly nowhere near my top. And I proceeded to just diet a lot. I was on every diet plan except for the one, the medical supervised fast, because I did my own, and um, Jenny Craig, because it hadn't been invented when I stopped dieting. But other than that, and I actually, during my, my 30s and even my parts of my 40s, I, I was good at dieting. I, um, there was a period of time when, after I came to California where I actually lost quite a bit of that weight and probably didn't weigh much more than I weigh now, but I, it was like insanity all the time. Diet, diet, diet. It just pervaded my entire life. You know, I can't eat there. Um, you can't, you know, oh, I'm not with my husband, you know, kind of that nudge. I'm not interested in sex tonight because I was too fat or hadn't eaten. Ever. I mean, just insanity. It governed my life. And um, I went in about 1977, I went to um, Overeaters Anonymous in a small town in California that was very conservative where I had come there from Cambridge, Massachusetts and it was like, oh my God, <laughs> the world, this isn't the world I know. And so I went to this Overeaters Anonymous meeting because I knew that I had some problem. And they, I went to maybe three or four and all I remember is, I'm so grateful to be a compulsive overeater. God, God forbid God, that there was AA literature because in those days there was no OA literature, and the gray sheet. So I took the gray sheet, had the program, told my husband, the trick is, I, you know, I don't have to go to the meetings, I just don't eat bread. So I um, fast forward a little bit, and I keep um, dieting, but I'm getting less and less successful. And now my weight gains are huge, like 30 pounds during from Thanksgiving to New Year's Day. So, and I found this, and I thought, you know, this is really sad, but at the time I thought it was funny, and it says, it's a cute Christmas ring, on a scale of one to a thousand, how much will you weigh after the holidays? Season's greetings. So I said this to all my friends. You know, like that's what life was about. Well, um, and, but I still, you know, I would go up and down and wait, but not feeling so uncomfortably heavy that I really felt I had to do anything about it for weight. But one day I was at work, this was in 1990, early 1990, and there had been some event, and I found myself in the break room eating frosting off the edges of a sheet cake with both my hands, and I said, this is alcoholic eating. And there, there is that place that has the A literature called Overeaters Anonymous, and I went. And from the time I went, I have been in this program every single day. I have not been absent every single day. I, do, I am not one of those people who's had long periods of what I define as continuous abstinence. I've had years, and then 
not, but I have never ever weighed anywhere near what I weighed even when I came to California. And I have never eaten in that way again. That's not to say I haven't eaten in a way that to me is not absent. And that's why, and, and three years ago, um, I changed my date again because I had an afternoon of sugar consumption that scared me. It wasn't what I intended to do. And um, I thought it was, for me, important just to start my time over. So I have almost three years now. So that's what it was like. In terms of the topic, you know, plus disturbance. When I got to the program, I first of all, what God, you know, uh, there was trusted servant of whom, and I think I thought the world is my trusted servant, you know, kind of like you're out on the freeway, and that guy in front of you is going a little too slow, and like the Red Sea parted, the, the traffic should part for me. I mean, you know, I am God, I guess I'm not. And where I, you know, I was taught from the very first day, services slimming, you know, if you're in a meeting, you're not eating, that kind of thing. And I did service from very, very early on with great fear and thinking, oh, you know, I'm not going to do it right. But what I've come to think about more recently is that some of our language, I wish, if I were, if I, and I think, you know, what I know now also is that I am they. And, you know, through intergroup and through, you know, intent to, to raise some issues. And one is, you know, our language. We talk about leaders and we talk about chair people and we talk about secretaries. And I'm, I was trying to think, well, what, what would the language be if it really describes what happens? You know, like would it be facilitator doesn't quite get it. Um, you know, kind of like catalyst. To me, so far, the only thing I come is catalyst. The people who do service and what we do in, in meetings is really to start a process by which we can all recover. We're not responsible for the recovery. We're just responsible for starting it. It reminds me, of course, I'm a compulsive reader, of a prep chef. I mean, the prep chef's job is just, you know, cut the whatever in the side pieces that the chef needs. Well, the, you know, the, the leader's catalyst job is to either make the coffee, open the door, make sure the literature is there, get a schedule published, do a newsletter, whatever it is, so that this thing can happen. And um, where I really learned about bringing God or trusting God was, you know, in business meetings. And over time, since 1990, I've been in a lot of business meetings, and some of them have been really bordered on ugly, but they always come they always manage to fix themselves. And I don't think I have ever seen a, a program-ending decision be made. Have decisions been made that I didn't like or didn't agree with? Absolutely. Have some of them been changed later on? Absolutely. Because I did something? No, just because they got changed. And um, what was I going to say about that? The... Um, the place I'm at now, and sometimes it's a hard place, is that um, even though we don't have leaders, once we've been in this program a while, and our job is not necessarily to lead, I think our job is to maintain the sacred trust. When I came to meetings early on, the first couple of years, when it was a tradition meeting, I didn't like it. You know, I want the step meetings, the real stuff, the, you know, the stuff that's going to keep me skinny or get me skinny and or make me happy. But, you know, I've come 
around completely that I am much happier in the tradition meetings because over time I found the traditions have tremendous applicability in my life, particularly my marriage. The traditions have gotten me through some knotholes in recent years because I, I worked them on my marriage, just like you worked steps and I worked the steps too. And, um, you know, I think we have a responsibility to maintain the tr traditions, which means to make sure, go to meetings that you don't always go to or that I don't always go to, and teach people about the traditions, not in a mean way. I mean, I used to say, when I first decided, you know, I should do this, which was, you know, maybe three years into the program, excuse me, that's cross-talk, don't do that, because you don't cross-talk in Sacramento. You know, I mean, that's not necessary, or that's breaking a tradition, or don't read that. You know, I've, now it can be gentle after a meeting, you know, or if somebody's doing something really inappropriate, just, you know, come outside, I'll talk to you you know, after they finish in that meeting, whatever it is, but not, it doesn't have to be brutal. And the whole purpose is just to keep the program from, um, from tubing. And um, the other is that whole thing of, of we and they. Um, if anything's wrong, in my opinion, in this program, then it's my responsibility to through the process, get it on a business meeting agenda, you know, get it on intergroup, ask the intergroup rep to take it to region, ask region to take it to world service, whatever. It's my responsibility to be the they, to start the process. I may not, I mean, you know, I may start a process and just, oh my God, how did that decision get made? But that's the God part. And my part is just to start the process. So thank you for letting me recover from my greatest fear and phobia. And, uh, <laughs> I'm going to start the, I will start it now. So um, anyway, our second speaker is Carl, who will also speak for 20 minutes. Good afternoon. My name is Carl Gerichter, and I am a compulsive overeater. Uh, I give you my last name because uh, I think it's important that we know who we are. Uh, the tradition of anonymity is one of the most misunderstood ones that we have in this program. It doesn't mean that the people in these rooms cannot know who we are. Uh, it's all about being anonymous outside these rooms. God forbid I get sick tomorrow and end up in the hospital. You're never going to find Carl G. You have to know who I am. So that's who I am. Um, service. Service, 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 service. Uh, I've been in the program since 1989 in September and uh, service has always been a large part of my program. Um, when I was in program about uh, a year uh, I was elected as a delegate to the intergroup by, by my home meeting and uh, I went, and it was very interesting. I didn't understand much of what was going on. Um, but after a while, I did. And, you know, they, they were doing different events and having different committees and whatnot. And the end of the year came along, and they had elections for the intergroup officers. And I was nominated as the public information chairperson. And my sponsor was there as a delegate from another meeting, 
And I said to him, I said, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know anything about public information. He says, well, you know, try it. The worst you can do is quit. And I said, okay, well, that was my first uh, foray into service above the meeting level as, as something other than a delegate. And I did that job in my intergroup for two years. Um, and in, in the course of that service, uh, I was interviewed on a live radio program. And uh, it was uh, uh, a very interesting experience because we had that tradition of anonymity to deal with. Um, and I made I had to talk to the, the radio station people, and because and, they had they had you sign this thing saying you know that you're okay with what they're going to do, and and uh, uh, I, I had questions because they had my full name there, and they said, well, you can't use my full name on the radio, and uh, well they said, well, what can we call you? I said, well, you can call me Carl, or you can call me a member of Overdue's Anonymous, and uh, so that's what they did. They called me Carl, and. Uh, uh, it was a it was a very good interview, and we got public information spots played on different radio stations, and we did a lot of different stuff to help carry the message. And the basis of service is basically carrying the message, whatever that service happens to be, uh, whether it's taking out the trash because that's a service the meeting needs, or talking to a num newcomer, which is also service, or just showing up at the meeting, which is also service because you can't have a meeting with people who are there. Uh, it's all very important. Um, you know, there, there, are, there are two classes of, of people in Overeaters Anonymous. Uh, this was, this was talk, told to me by a, a guy when, when I first started doing service. He, he'd been in program about eight years at the time. He said there are members, and then one step below members are trusted servants. And, and I thought that was kind of funny at first, but then what I've come to realize over the years is that that's actually the service structure of Overeaters Anonymous. It's, a, it's an inverted pyramid. It's upside down. At the very top, the, the large side of the pyramid, are all the members. And then below that are the trusted servants you know, at those meetings, and below that are the trusted servants at the inner group, and below that are the trusted servants at, at, at Region 2 uh, or the... Uh, 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 national service boards for some of the countries that don't have regions and then below that is world service at the very tip of that upside down pyramid and uh, uh, that's that's the way it works uh, and I, over the years I've done uh, af after I was the uh, public information chair of my inner group uh, I was elected to be the chair of the inner group and I did that for two years I can't remember how long like ten years ago uh, but at the same time, I uh, took a position as a Region 2 representative. I went to my first Region 2 assembly. And uh, um, I enjoyed that service. Uh, and I learned a lot in doing that service. And I learned a lot about rotation of service. Um, for those of you that don't know what that means, that means that someone who is a secretary of a meeting for six months uh, it's probably not wise for that person to be the secretary for another year and a half. It just doesn't, it do, it's, it's not fair to A, the meeting, B, the person doing that service, or C, to other people who should get into service and be doing that service. 
uh, it's very important to rotate service. Uh, my inner group has uh, rules for how long you can be in a position. Uh, a board position I can only do for two years. Uh, and you can only be on the board consecutively for four years. As a Region 2 rep, same thing. Our, our inner group had the same thing. The two-year commitment, maximum four years without a break. Region 2 has the same uh, same thing. You can be in a position for two years. You cannot be on the board for more than four years at one time. Um, it's important. Now, in the higher or the lower, depending on how you're looking at the pyramid, uh, levels of service, uh, Region 2, World Service, whatever, uh, those commitments are longer than a six-month secretary commitment because with the jobs that are done take a longer time to do and to get any continuity it requires a commitment of a longer period of time so that when you start working on something uh, like uh, well convention for instance uh, which we're here at the region 2 convention that that's a process that takes a year a year from the get-go from the, the they're, they're starting right now and the people in this room can attest to that. They're starting right now to plan next year's convention in Sacramento. And if it was only a six-month term, they'd have to reinvent the wheel in six months. So it, it doesn't work that way. Um, when I was a Region 2 rep, I, and I did that for two years, and then I was reelected by my inner group to do it for another two years, uh, so I was the uh, chair of, of my inner group at the same time I was Region 2 rep for two years, and then I was no longer the chair of my inner group, but I was now still a Region 2 rep. I was still going to Region 2, and towards the end of my two-year term, my last two-year term is that, I was elected to the Region 2 board as a treasurer. And I served in that position for four years as the Region 2 treasurer. And it was a lot of work. Uh, I don't think people realize how much work it is uh, at that level for some of these positions. And it's uh, usually a pretty thankless job. Um, and I would not have traded that for the world. I got so much more out of it than I gave. Uh, I, I, you know, there, there are perks to being on, on a region board or a world service thing because they, they pay for your room, they pay for your meals, whatever it is, uh, to, you know, when you go to the convention and things like that. And I went to four conventions as the region two treasurer. And at those four con con conventions, I never saw a single speaker. Uh, I never went to a single workshop. I never went to a single uh, panel or a marathon because my job was to chase money. And that's what I did. And it was great. Uh, I, don't, I don't regret it. Uh, I wish I had been able to hear some of the speakers. I've heard some of the tapes. Uh, I went to some of the uh, events you know, at, and that night when things were closed. You know, and and uh, uh, it was wonderful stuff. Because in doing that service, I got to meet people who have my disease. Um, I, was, we, I was just listening to another workshop before I came in here, and there was a question asked that have you ever had to abstain through a life-threatening disease? And 
uh, I, I was sitting in the back saying, yeah, compulsive overeating. And, and none of the speakers answered that question that way, which I thought was very interesting, because I have a life-threatening disease. I, I'm a compulsive overeater, and it's a disease that wants to kill me. And uh, as Ruth said, if I'm, if I'm being of service someplace, I'm not eating. If I'm in a meeting, I'm not eating. And service is slimming. Well, you know, service is slimming, uh, but it's only slimming if I'm willing to put down the fork. I can uh, be doing a lot of service uh, and eat a lot of food at the same time. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a it's a slimming thing if you allow it to be a slimming thing. Um, but what I find that every time I am willing to be of service and I get to give service, see, I don't have to be of service. I get to be of service. It's for me. It's not a have to. I don't have to, and, and I get to. It's such a gift for me to be able to be of service at a meeting if I can. So today, because of the way my life is, I can't do a lot of meeting-level service because uh, I can't make a commitment to be at a meeting every week. Uh, I have a, a, a child that I have every other week, and uh, I can't go to uh, a regular meeting on the week that I have my daughter. So uh, I've been fortunate enough again to uh, uh, be elected to service at the intergroup level of my intergroup. I'm, I'm the intergroup chair of my intergroup again. Uh, after 10 years, you know, rotation has come around one more time. And uh, it was a little scary to come back and do that service again because uh, in my intergroup there had been a lot of strife over the last couple of years in the intergroup itself. And one of the reasons I came back to it was because I know I had done the job before and I was hoping that I could bring some sanity back to the uh, delegates meetings. And uh, thank you God that has been the case and uh, things are going quite well at our intergroup. But we just had one of our biggest fundraisers that we've had in, in years and uh, uh, it, it wasn't anything that I did. I didn't plan it. I didn't... Uh, 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 do much to 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 get it going other than uh, be there and say yes we can do this and have a, a committee set it up find a place to do it uh, arrange for the entertainment arrange for the speaker arrange for uh, whatever you know fundraising items we were going to deal with and uh, it was a beautiful event last Saturday that we had and my inner group is four thousand dollars ahead because of it. Uh, but again, I did nothing except show up and at, the, at that event and set up chairs and tables, because you know I, I'm still I'm no better than anybody else. I, I, I'm still I'm still Carl Gerichter. I still have a, a disease called compulsive overeating, and I am still willing to set up chairs and clean up and pick up papers and and do everything that I did when I walked in the doors. Um, I I've just been fortunate enough to be given the opportunity to do service at another level. But it's all the same thing. Uh, and being a trusted servant means that I get to do the will of the body. Uh, I was at my delegates meeting a couple months ago and uh, the person in charge of, of coming out with our, our new speaker leader list brought it out and passed it out and there were some glaring errors in it that uh, some of the membership that at the delegates meeting started going 
wacko about. And uh, you know, the, I said, you know, this stuff, you know, we have the copies right here. You know, cross out the number of your year's abstinence and write in the number. We'll do that on all these copies. And next time we need to print more, we'll change it. And then there was somebody else as well. I have a whole list here that didn't get in on time, and now it's not going to be on the list. And, and the person in charge of the list said, well, yeah, we had a deadline date, and uh, you missed it. And you know, we'll have another one next year. And you know, a lot of people are not not real happy with that, and, and uh, you know, I, I'm looking at this person thinking, okay, we are trusted servants. We are to do what the body wants us to do. And one of the people said, well, how come we only do it once a year? And I said, well, we do it once a year because that's what it says in our uh, policies and procedures. And if you want it to change, you let us know because we are your trusted servants. We are here to do what you ask us to do. If you want us to do it again, let us know. That's what we're here for. And the person who's in charge of this list got up and made an immense new meeting for her attitude because she realized that she was not thinking outside the box. She had done her job. She had done it to the best of her ability. And she didn't realize that it could still be done again. And it just took talking and being rational about it and letting people know that the service bodies are there to do what the fellowship wants. Now, sometimes the fellowship wants stuff that we can't do. I had another time when uh, a person at the delegates meeting made a motion to add exercise to the tools. And I said, well, you know, we can't do that. Why not? Well, we can't do that because we are not the body that makes up that list of tools. That's the World Service Business Conference that does that. And, well, you print up this little piece of paper that has tools on it. We read at meetings. Yes, we do. And we take that from the World Service pamphlet, The Tools of Recovery. And that pamphlet is done by committee at the World Service Business Conference. Now, our inner group some years ago brought a motion to the World Service Business Conference to change the tools. And we did. We changed the tools so that anonymity was no longer a tool. No, abstinence, I'm sorry. Abstinence was no longer a tool. Plan of eating became the tool. Abstinence is our primary purpose. And that was because our inner group had the desire to have that change made because that's the way we saw it. We took it to World Service, we went through the proper channels, and that's what we did. And I told this person, you can do the same thing. If you want exercise as a tool, then you write it up as a motion for the World Service Business Conference. You submit it to the inner group. The inner group will vote on whether or not they want to submit it. And if they do, as a group conscience, I, as the chair, will sign the motion and send it to World Service. Because that's how this works. It all gets done on that pyramid. We do what you ask us, but as a group conscience. And the group has a right to be wrong. The group can decide to do something that is totally wrong. And what will happen is eventually they will either realize that they were wrong, or in the case of a meeting, the meeting may die. 
because they're not staying within the traditions or whatever. So service, it's complicated, but it's also very easy. You do what you can do. You do what you can to help carry the message. And the message of recovery is that one day at a time we can abstain from compulsive overeating and keep our organization healthy. The traditions, uh, and I love what you said about the, Ruth about the traditions working in a relationship. I, I firmly believe that if you read the traditions and you look at it from a relationship standpoint, they're great. They're great. I, I think about that myself all the time. But the traditions are what the, the trusted servants are uh, required to deal with. The meetings are dealing with the, working the steps. The traditions, the, the, the trusted servants help us understand what those traditions are and how they apply. Uh, and it's always, always a requirement for uh, well service at the Region 2 board level that you are familiar with those traditions and have a working knowledge of them. So uh, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I've been in programs since September of 1989. I'm a 100 pounder. I've been maintaining a 100 pound weight loss for 12 some odd years now. And uh, if I'm willing, uh, in September I'll have 14 years. Uh, I say if I'm willing because God is always willing. Uh, that's uh, been my experience. So, uh, thank you for letting me share and uh, get out there and give some good service. I know, huh? We've got a long list here. Oh, I don't know if we can get started. Okay. All right. We will now have questions from the Ask It Basket. Um, and we have some other questions back here, or you might think of some more. I don't know. Um, this is, I guess, to just anybody. How do you know when you are doing too much service? What is uh, an appropriate amount? I'll leave the question here. Okay, I'm wrap that microphone. We can pass it back to us instead of having to jump up and down. Okay. This is my test for the day. Just see if I can coordinate. Not difficult. There we go. Okay. Okay, so what was the question? Here, you can read it again there. Let me get my glasses. How do you know when you are uh, doing too much service? What is an appropriate amount? Um, for me, if I'm doing too much service, I'm starting to burn out and I'm starting to resent it. And uh, I don't want to have a resentment. I, I have a friend in the program that says, I, I, I'd rather that you resent me than me resent you. Because resentment will kill me. And if I start to resent my service, then I'm doing too much and it's time to let something go. Uh, but that, that doesn't mean you bail and uh, just let it sit. You find somebody to replace you or you go through the proper procedures of uh, telling the service body that you're working with that you need to be replaced and you, you step down gracefully and have somebody replace you. You just don't bail and never show up again. My take. Uh, I was going to say something similar and uh, the other part, and this has to do with my own uh, character defects, is if I feel like... How how come I'm the only one doing this? You know, like the, some, the way I sometimes feel about cleaning the kitchen or house or something. You know, how come, you know, I'm the only one doing it? Then I'm doing too much service, and usually not because anybody begged me to, um, but because I just got myself in over my head or thought I was so indispensable that I was the only one who could do it, and uh, that's just dangerous for me. Okay. Um, 
businesses. I hate being treasurer, and I am not good at it. What do you think about doing service you don't like? Well, I love being treasurer, so I do it a lot. Well, I did it today. Um, I think that um, it's okay to do service that where you have strengths in that area. Um, I think it's okay for someone who likes to do things on the web to be the webmaster for the intergroup. But I also think it's okay to do what I did today, and that is to to do service um, for one's own growth and to get over one's own issue areas, whatever they are. Um, If you're doing service that you don't like, i.e. treasurer, um, my question is why did you take the service position in the first place? Uh, And in the second place, again, if you're starting to resent it, uh, then don't do it. Find somebody else to replace you. But, again, if you're going to take a service position, be ready to take that commitment very seriously and follow through with it. Uh, If it's not something you want to do, then don't do it. Don't stand up in front of the, the, the group and, and just because they nominated you, do it because you, you want to uh, make nice to them uh, or to please them. That's not a reason for doing service. Um, so, yeah. Well, those are the only two questions out to ask at Basket, but they did, do have a couple of questions in the back of this thing that they said we could use, and there are a couple of them I think that, I mean, I sure would like to hear what you guys have to say. Uh, one is when you feel disconnected or out of step, like during dry spells, how do you reconnect with the program and or your higher power? Um, I do two things, uh, and, you know, that, that that's a terrible thing when it happens suddenly, you know, just to be off the beam and know that you were once on, or I was once on the beam and not being quite clear how to get back. There's two things that work for me. One is that I I clean up my food, and by that I mean, you know, within my absence there's some things that I eat routinely and there's some things that I eat less routinely, and I go back and I simply eat only those things which I routinely eat because that helps me to get centered. And the other is I start reading the first 164 pages of the big book. I don't always get to the 164th page because I find that just the doing of it, particularly the early chapters, at least through the first five chapters, that um, then I'm back on the B. I call my sponsor. And I I talk about it. Uh, And we discuss it and sometimes I rebel about what he wants me to do about it and uh, do it anyway uh, and uh, yeah, get back into my step work if, I, if I'm not doing it and uh, get to the meeting and pitch that uh, works for me perfect time yeah that's fun. Okay. Um, what role do you see the traditions in general playing in your recovery Well, in terms of the program, obviously, it's it's what allows the miracle to keep happening and for this extraordinary kind of big amoeba to, to actually um, get things done and, and uh, survive and be um, 
be sacred. Uh, and for me, where where the traditions have been most useful, as I indicated earlier, was in my marriage. But in many relationships, whether it's my family, uh, my sister in particular, um, you know, they've just helped me to structure a way of approaching uh, relationship problems that have been um, challenging for me. The steps are what keep us healthy as individuals. The traditions are what keep us healthy as a group. Uh, and without the group, we would have no meetings, we would have no recovery. So the traditions are the basis of keeping Overeaters Anonymous healthy. Uh, and when we get away from the traditions, is when we start having problems in meetings and in intergroup meetings and wherever, whatever level. Uh, and it's very important to stay within those traditions. They were written years ago uh, by Alcoholics Anonymous because they saw that they needed that structure to keep their organization from falling apart. And we need that same uh, structure. We need those same limits and, and, and uh, uh, yeah, structure to, to keep us guided through uh, the decisions that we make as a group uh, so that we don't self-destruct. And two more questions. How do you use the program to face the issues that come up in everyday life? <laughs> Carl will go first. Okay. Issues that come up in everyday life. Well, uh, honesty is something that I didn't used to have a lot of, and I still have a problem with it now and again. Sometimes I will bend uh, the truth uh, because of fear, and. Uh, uh, but basically what the program tells me to do that I have to be responsible for my actions. And whether I'm at work or whether I'm uh, at home with my family, uh, I have to be responsible for my actions. Um, and I've had experiences where uh, things are, are not necessarily going well in, in one situation or another. And... My mantra is the serenity prayer. Uh, I, I, you know, I go, I had to have a root canal uh, six, eight months ago. I don't remember how long ago it was now. But I hate needles. And, you know, they, they use this big Novocaine needle first, and then they use these little needles inside my tooth. And I was just sitting in a chair with the, the serenity prayer over and over and over and over and over again. And, you know what? I got through it. And that's, that's what keeps me going is knowing that this too shall pass, whatever it is, good or bad, it will pass, and uh, I don't have to eat a small South American village because uh, I had a bad day. That's an interesting question, because I think that um, one of the things, as far as my program, is that it, it is in many ways, how I do my life. It's very hard for me to picture 
living without my right arm, and it's almost impossible for me to picture uh, living without my program. And it, it's really infused in um, of everything that I do. I mean, when it, some of the sometimes I have to be in a lot of pain to pick up a particular tool, but I I use all of the tools, um, and I uh, repeatedly have worked the steps. Um, different formats, uh, sing alone, I mean not alone, but with an uh, individual sponsor and uh, with a group. Um, and I think that the reason I actually survived my life is that I um, know that there are tools that I can apply on a moment's uh, notice uh, Anytime, anywhere, um, when I think the guy in front of me on the highway is supposed to be moving, I can remind myself that, um, you know, it's out of my control. Kick back. Enjoy it. And then what has been the greatest stumbling block in your recovery, and what tools or steps do you use to overcome that? Uh the greatest stumbling block in my recovery is myself. Uh, I get in my own way. Uh, I I have a lot of negativity, neg negative thinking that goes on in my head uh, that was ingrained in me for the first 40 years of my life before I came into these rooms. And it's very difficult for me to get around that my first reaction to things is usually a negative reaction and I have to stop and step back and go around that and say no that's not necessarily the case when I first came into program uh, and something would go wrong in my life uh, I would I would beat myself up I would still beat myself up and say you stupid piece of shit and I would have to stop myself and say no no, and I'm verbalize this out loud. No, this is not true. This is just something that's going wrong. You are not a piece of shit. And uh, that's, you know, I have to get out of my own way. And, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've been in program almost 14 years now, and it's still there. And I still have to work on it. And I still do. Uh, I'm a work in progress. And uh, I continue to endeavor to keep that negativity uh, in its little cage. I mean, I'd, I'd like to keep it in there all the time, but it doesn't uh, tend to be that way. It kind of sneaks out through the bars now and again and, and creeps up on me. And, uh, and I have to look at that. And sometimes I, 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 I use it in, in a joking manner. And it's, uh, it gets put, my sponsor points it out to me now and again. Uh, not that he judges, <laughs> uh, but uh, it does. It, it, it gets. Him, I get my own way, and that's the biggest stumbling block. Um, I'd have to say the same thing. I think that since the time I came to my first meeting in the 70s, and then when I came back in 90, that there have been two areas of thinking that have been pitfalls for me, and for many, but for me in particular, they have been... I am not a compulsive overeater, or if I'm a little more 
in touch with reality. I don't want to be a compulsive overeater. And the second one is compulsive eating isn't a disease. We're just fooling ourselves. This isn't a disease. Um, and if I was just a uh, good root of some kind and just could, you know, get that skill, just like I've mastered other skills, then, you know, uh, this would be fixed permanently. And, you know, the only thing that's changed is I don't do that as often, not nearly as often. And the other is that even if I'm doing it, I tell myself, you know, that's, I know that's not true. And I tell myself I don't have to want to, but I am maintaining my willingness to do the things every single day that allow me to stay uh, clean with my food, abstinent, and more important than anything else, serene. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, awesome. Um, let's see. It is now time to close this workshop. Please join me in a moment of silence, followed by the OA promise, which I don't have in mind. Four well, we minutes will stand up this circle. <laughs> <laughs> See if I can remember this one. <laughs> Put my hand in yours, and together we can do what we could never do alone. No longer is there a sense of hopelessness. No longer is there a on our own unsteady willpower. We are all together now, reaching out our hands for a power and strength greater than ours. And as we join hands, we find love and understanding beyond our wildest dreams. Keep coming back. It works if you work. <laughs>